sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the uh, trial beginning of the Oath Keepers and their role in the January 6th attack on the Capitol and much, much more. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Daryl Lamont Jenkins, executive producer of the One People's Project. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. Wow, thank you for having me. Good to be here again. Absolutely, and it's good to have you again, Daryl. And, of course, the trial of Stuart Rhodes, who leads a far-right paramilitary group by the name of the Oath Keepers, um, has begun uh, uh, around, you know, what's being described and, you know, what we've maintained here on the show as a uh, seditious conspiracy uh, that took place on January 6, 2021, where the Oath Keepers and other armed groups tried to stop the confirmation, if you will, of uh, the victory of Joe Biden as president of the United States. And even before we even really get into the trial aspect of things, Daryl, you know, as someone who studies these far right groups closely, these uh, different uh, racist and reactionary groups, I was hoping you could tell us something about uh, the Oath Keepers and about Stuart Rhodes, uh, uh, what they represent and and uh, what is the role they play here? Well, I would tell you first off that um, when we're looking at this trial, um, and a lot of people are talking about how we view the police and the military in general, and it's interesting how we're just cheering on the fact that they're in trouble right now. And I think really it's just a matter of general principle on our part because you're supposed to get into trouble for things like this. You're supposed to um, suffer the consequences for things like this. But police and the military generally do not. Police and military feel like they are above the law. Oath keepers, <clears throat> excuse me, oath keepers are a manifestation of that because they are basically retired, some active military, retired and some active um, police officers that decided to um, get together and form this paramilitary organization um, just maybe, I would say, four or five years ago and uh, to more or less advance their political agenda. Now, they're all white supremacists that we have found within the group, too. So that's a, that's a factor that plays into this. Um, in particular, I remember that one of the officers is a guy named John E. Taylor, and his brother is Jared Taylor, who publishes American Renaissance, which is a white supremacist publication. Um, so that dynamic is at play. So when we see what's happening now, um, and we look at the, the whole militia movement in general, we're basically looking at people who are not just trying to uproot the government and uproot um, America in general, but um, also basically just trying to um, do so because they cannot keep their boot on us as effectively as they used to. So that is the thing to take away from all of this that is going on right now. And um it's a rather sobering thing once you do. 
Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's uh, pretty, you know, noteworthy uh, some of the things that are being revealed here about, um, you know, reportedly uh, uh, the Oath Keepers were, you know, stashing weapons in Virginia and all of these sorts of things. And so uh, what do we know at this point, Daryl, about the role of the Oath Keepers in the uh, uh, January 6th attack as, you know, there were one of, uh, I think, uh, several uh, sort of similar, similarly organized uh, militia groups that stormed the Capitol that day. Well, that's the thing. One of the things that um, is really important is not only that there were several um, groups besides the Oath Keepers, and may as well throw in the Proud Boys in this as well, but um, the fact of the matter is that there also have, um, there's questions about who they have been working with, who had they been coordinating with, and that coordination part is what's getting them in trouble today, because it was more than just a rally. Um, I like. I know they like to say that it was um, just a rally, but it was more than that. And people um, have already seen evidence of that. Evidence that they themselves provided by shamelessly promoting themselves through documentarians who filmed their meetings in parking decks and such the night before. They didn't realize that this is actually something that can be used as evidence in the crime. And because they felt, as I said before, they were above the law. And perhaps they'll learn in the next couple of um, weeks that, no, they were not, but that even that still re- is, remains to be seen. So, Yeah, definitely. And, you know, a moment ago, you mentioned the, the militia movement, which is something that has been uh, sort of operating in the United States, uh, I would say, for uh, several decades at this point. Point. And I mean, this is what uh, gave rise to people like uh, Timothy McVeigh and all these sorts of things. It feels like there was kind of a hype for the militia movement uh, back during the 90s. I don't know if you'd uh, agree with that, Daryl. But yeah. You, yeah, yeah, uh, you, what, what, what is it sort of uh, about that movement? Like, what is the character of that movement that we're uh, still seeing sort of, um, I don't even want to say traces. It's definitely more than traces. I think we're still definitely seeing the vestiges of today in a number of very real ways. Well, one of the things that the right likes to do, and, and I think they pretty much lean on it, is try to deflect any charges of racism directed at them. So when I saw the militias coming up in 94, I just saw them as proverbially the clan without the racism. <laughs> because they were they were similar to all the paramilitary clan groups that I had seen prior to. I saw them for the first time in 94. Um, they started showing up on programs like Donahue, um, and they had black black members at the time. And that was really what it ultimately became. But then, not long after, just I said I saw them, I met them, I saw them for the first time on Donahue, I would say in November of 94. By April, Oklahoma City happened. By April. And that just tells you just how much of a lack of disconnect from the racist elements that these groups ultimately have. Then we start learning more and more about the original um, associates within the militia movement. And yeah, they had ties to white supremacist groups. And even, and today they flaunted even more so, um, while still trying to deny that they are associated with that. I saw militia members at Charlottesville, one of them incidentally, um, posing as one of the militia members or rather, um, associated with one of the militia members was Enrique Tario, who went on to become 
the head, the, um, the public face of the Proud Boys. And that alone should tell us what we are working with. So when January 6th comes rolling around, we are looking at it going, we told you so. Now let's do something about it. Now, perhaps they are going to do something about it now with these trials because everybody is looking at them, but it remains to be seen, as I said. Yeah, and I got to say, from like a pop culture standpoint, you're really talking about a a relic of a bygone era. I definitely remember that period (laughs) where these daytime television shows seemingly were uh, obsessed with, you know, uh, platforming militia members and Klan members and neo-Nazis and all those sorts of things, you know, uh, you know, clearly from the basis of sensationalism. But yeah, and from from a broader uh, standpoint, Daryl, and just sort of taking a step back, because you're also someone you don't just study. Uh, these far right groups, um, you you also see them in the streets. You know, you're someone who is sort of uh, uh, and has been for some years a kind of on the ground organizer and observer of a lot of these things. And so, particularly in the political moment that we're in in the United States right now, where it seems as these far right groups, these paramilitary groups, we're talking about the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys or uh, a Patriot front or any of these uh, kinds of groups, they've basically, in my estimation, have been employed as the street muscle for uh, uh, the far right in this country and, and the Republican Party, namely under uh, Donald Trump. You know what I mean? And so as these trials continue and these same elements, you know, uh, have not, in my opinion, have not really retreated, but really, I think, have made a real kind of surge and play for power. You know, we see people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert actually uh, achieving elected office. Um, you know, uh, uh, another Donald Trump presidency, I would say at this point, is not out of the question. It's still something that I think is very much in play. And so what do you see kind of as the uh, uh, role, if you will, of these types of groups, you know, within this uh, uh, moment where, I mean, frankly, it seems to be uh, reaching a certain level of danger as we continue to see them, you know, uh, attacking pride events and uh, all these uh, sorts of things. And so how are these elements sort of maneuvering in this moment where they seem to, uh, frankly, feel rather emboldened and I think have felt that way for uh, at least a couple of years now? I think with the pride events, I think with the attacks they are waging against uh, pride events as well as um, critical race theory. um, Right. anti-critical race theory campaigns, what you're basically just seeing there is just keeping their brand fresh, to Mm. be honest. In the end, it's bigger than Donald Trump. It's bigger than um, any of the things that uh, we see even um, on the face, in the public. They have always talked about creating something apart from today's society because today's society has rejected them. So you hear them talking about succession. Now they call it a national divorce. That's the, that's their term for succession. Now it's a little bit more palatable to them. National <laughs> divorce. Um, and they talk of civil war. So basically what they're doing right now is just rallying their troops. So just basically positioning everybody for that big move. The reason why it hasn't happened the thing that stands in the way has always been us, not the government, as they like to say, but us, because they know 
that that rejection that they have been getting decade after decade will manifest itself into actions against them that would just wipe them out if they pulled any kinds of stunts. The truth of the matter is we may be docile now, we may be quiet now, but when you saw what happened in the wake of Charlottesville, when you saw what happened in the wake of January 6th, where we rose up and took action against these folks before they went too far, you also basically saw a shot across the bow to them that we will fight back if need be. We will not wait for the Joe Bidens. We can't wait for the Joe Bidens. He just he just called out white supremacy for the first time probably in his entire career just a couple of weeks ago. You know, so we will handle it. And um, and that's the one of the things that we um, that we also have to bear in mind. We do have the strength to beat that back. But that's what they're trying to do. They are trying to position themselves to create a different society than the one that we have right now. One that they think that is palatable to them, but it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Yeah, and I agree. I mean, we definitely can't um, rely on sort of the the, the halls of power and elected uh, uh, officials that's currently construed under this system. I mean, as you say, Joe Biden only recently uh, using phrases like white supremacy and fascism, um, frankly, in my opinion, opportunistically to sort of boost both his own uh, uh, profile and that of uh, the Democrat Party. It's an election year. You know what I mean? And so I do believe it's really going to take a uh, an organized sort of people's effort to really uh, struggle with this issue. And uh, well, and on top of the fact that he just gave, you know, uh, $37 billion to the police, which I think, you know, is, uh, I think we, uh, we could describe it as an almost, uh, they're like, uh, like a version of some of these same groups, almost just kind of legitimized by the state. And there's a deeper aspect to this. When we look at what actually uh, went down, you know, on January 6th? I mean, the Washington Post, Post reports that um, uh, Rhodes uh, uh, was actually urging an intermediary to tell Donald Trump, quote, it's still not too late to take action. Um, and by that, uh, basically meaning uh, calling for Trump to openly call for militias to overthrow the government uh, in that way. And, um, and according to one of these recordings that you were mentioning earlier, um, uh, Daryl uh, Rhodes also said, quote, my only regret is that they should have brought rifles into D.C. You know what I mean? And so what that what that brings me to is the fact that the Oath Keepers were sort of only one piece of this puzzle, right? Only one cog in the wheel. And that there were uh, people and elements far above uh, uh, the Oath Keepers that were actually operating uh, in the events of January 6, 2021. And so what it makes me think about, Daryl, is, you know, where is the real accountability or justice for people at that level. And it just reminds me of the moments, really the days immediately following January 6th, where it felt like there was this kind of paralysis that set in the entire of the political mainstream in the United States. I mean, that was an opportune moment, move, excuse me, moment to go directly after Trump and all of these same people are right now that actually could have put a nail in the coffin of uh, uh, the Trumpist movement as we know it. But, I mean, time went by, nothing uh, uh, happened, and before you knew it, uh, Trump was basically rehabilitated. And the only real uh, punishment he's faced as a sitting president calling for seditious conspiracy is that he got his Twitter taken. And so my question, uh, uh, Daryl, is, you know, uh, uh, what then of the masterminds of uh, January 6th and uh 
uh, uh, how we should be orienting towards them or how we you know, should be thinking about how that whole piece plays out. Because, as I think you mentioned a little earlier, this is an issue that does go far beyond the Oath Keepers, as dangerous as they are. Well, in regards to Trump, I think that honestly, and this is just basically conventional wisdom, um, not just uh, how I feel should, things should go, but um, I think that it's taking time because you're talking about for the first time, if he was to ever be indicted, if he was ever to be indicted, um, it'll be the first time a president, um, former or otherwise, has that's ever happened to. Now, I do believe that he will be indicted. Not sure yet whether or not he will be convicted, but um, if we are talking about people who um, live off of optics, plus you got to remember Donald Trump's hurting the money. Mm. Donald Trump is hurting the money. And how no matter mean? how, well, when you're talking about this, this is a, when you're talking about the Republican party, their brand is getting hurt more and more and more. Donations will not come in. It will shift over to Democrats. If you notice, a lot of more right-wingers are going to the Democratic Party or remaining independent or relying on the Democratic Party to get them out of the mess they created. Um, But what you see now is a lot of um, people who are still Republicans calling out Donald Trump. Take a look at what's going on on Fox News. They're calling out Donald Trump every now and again. And 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 I think that they're looking for a reset. They can have somebody like a Ron DeSantis who can do the same exact things that Donald Trump is doing, but not being stupid about it, not um, breaking in. Well, he is breaking laws. I apologize. Uh, that Ron DeSantis <laughs> is most certainly breaking laws, but but he has the ability to get away with it. Donald Trump does not. So they need to cut their losses because it's hurting them. So I do see at the very least Donald Trump will get an indictment. Um, But in the meantime, as you said, it was slow. It has been slow because I think and because I think that there is are still people in both parties that are trying to salvage something out of all of this so that um, when um, the time comes, they don't get hurt because let's face it, they're all doing the same darn thing. (laughs) <laughs> and we got, and that's yet another thing that we got to be mindful of. And that's one of the reasons why we got to start talking about how we are going to um, create a better world that goes beyond what the current state of the government is. Because let's be real, they allow this to happen. They allow this to happen, and they've been allowing it to happen for ever since the Civil Rights Bill was signed. They have been just trying to find a way to crawl back up. And this is their this is their last chance, as far as a lot of them are concerned. Because one way or another, we're going to try to remain um, maintain what it is that we have built over the past um, 40, 50, 60 years. Um, it might even mean an end to the United States as we know it. But if that is the case, it's not going to be with these clowns running anything. So uh, in any capacity, anywhere. So this. All of this can start getting real confusing real fast. (laughs) Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Daryl, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary.
by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the ongoing fallout from Hurricane Ian inside Cuba. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Arnold August, a Montreal-based author of three books on U.S.-Cuba-Latin America relations. He is an award-winning journalist, publishes in English, Spanish, and French on several continents, collaborates with Telesor, Cuban TV, and Press TV Iran, and is a contributing editor for the Canada Files and also a member of the International Manifesto Group. Arnold, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure for me to be with you once again. Absolutely. And the pleasure is all ours, uh, Arnold. And of course, here recently in Cuba, Hurricane Ian made landfall as a Category 3 storm. Now, over 50,000 people were evacuated. Uh, The island lost power and reportedly over 50,000 homes were destroyed as well. And so the country, even while still struggling under a U.S. blockade, is trying to rebuild. And I was also reading some reports about, uh, I believe the Cuban government actually made a request uh, to the U.S. government for some uh, emergency aid. Now, I believe at this point, uh, uh, at least some power has been restored to the country and things like this. We're seeing reports in NPR and elsewhere of a protest happening in Cuba as uh, some, uh, I believe some aspects of the island are still without electricity. And so I'm just generally curious, Arnold, your thoughts about I mean, how all of this has been unfolding. Now, this comes not that long after a uh, natural disaster struck a uh, 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 some energy infrastructure in Cuba, causing huge fires, an incredible amount of damage, and uh, really just uh, uh, compounding an already overtaxed energy system there in the country. And so all of these things are sort of being folded together, impacting the people of Cuba in a serious way at this point. And I'm just wondering how you're considering it all. Well, let's get the conversation started in the following way. Uh, I've been in contact with my, my sources in in Havana and other parts of Cuba yesterday and this morning. And there's a lot of uh, disinformation in the uh, uh, mainstream press for Miami, etc., describing uh, violent protests uh, by Cubans as a result of the electricity uh, shortage following uh, the hurricane. Ian. And one of my uh, sources told me very clearly, it was like uh, sort of a joke, but it was real. He said the so-called uh, Pacific peaceful demonstrators, uh, at one point, the uh, one of the demonstrators, uh, by accident, I guess he was very agitated, two knives from his pocket fell on the floor. Yes, he was arrested. So, you know, this is how it plays out. The Q, there, there are demonstrations. Things are taking place place there like that with regard to the power outage. Now, I saw another uh, video sort of uh, coming from an individual from Havana, and he was quite angry. He just posted his own video. He said, look, why are they saying that uh, uh, Cuba is in such a terrible situation with regards to recuperation after Hurricane Ian? And he said, look, United States, the most powerful economic uh, country in the world with all those resources, how long is it taking them 
to restore electricity and provide shelter to the people. Now, another source tells me that, yes, there are, even though the press is, is saying that the demonstrations have subsided, there is, in fact, still isolated uh, demonstrations. And another source made a, told me, uh, gave me a very interesting insight from Havana, translating from Spanish, of course, saying that the, the protests fizzled out. One of the reasons being, of course, the main reason being that the government, despite all the difficulties, has uh, succeeded in putting the electricity uh, into place. So most people had uh, have electricity uh, in the last couple of days. And what he said, one of the reasons that the demonstrations didn't go very far, he says, because everyone knows that the situation in Florida is far worse than the situation in Cuba. So I guess people ha are, are aware of that. And he said, like jokingly, well, thanks to to Florida, he said, well, I don't wish any uh, bad uh, luck for the people of Florida, but thanks to what happened in Florida, uh, this helps to diffuse uh, any uh, violent type of demonstrations against the Cuban government. Yeah, and I appreciate you raising the issue of uh, hurricane response in Florida, Arnold, because that's precisely where my mind went um, in sort of reading these reports about uh, uh, the response from the Cuban government to Hurricane Ian, and not just Ian, but really every hurricane. And as someone who happens to be a native Floridian, I've lived through, you know, a few hurricanes myself. And even the way we're seeing it play out right now in places like Tampa, well, we're not really seeing a lot of effective government response to the devastation and people losing their homes and losing resources and things like that. It's on the ground organizers who are helping people out as best that they can. So I was hoping you could uh, uh, explain some about Cuba's robust emergency uh, response infrastructure and how they're able to uh, preserve so much human life when these things uh, happen, which they do pretty regularly, of course, as they sit as an island in the Caribbean. Yes, uh, that's a, a very good point. I think our listeners have to keep in mind the following, and that, uh, you know, it's often said, oh, Cuba, it's a, it's a, it's a state-run uh, country, everything, you know, from top down, etc. Yes, it is state-run, but it has this major advantage. For example, when a hurricane hits, the entire country is mobilized from the top to the bottom, from the leadership, the president of the of Cuba down to the grassroots neighborhoods that everything is mobilized in order to overcome these problems to clear away debris and you know sending uh, electric electric workers to the key spots in Havana and elsewhere to reestablish the electricity so there's no uh, break in communication there's just one massive response and you know there's a tradition in Cuba coming from the you know 1950s and 1959 revolution that it's a we're talking about a war of the people so of course this is not a revolution but the Cuban thinking is that when it comes to hurricanes and similar disaster it is the whole people who are involved in trying to re-establish the situation. I've seen so many photographs from my colleagues in Havana where they are proudly, uh, you know, picking up branches and clearing the area, not to mention the very heroic uh, electricity workers uh, virtually risk risking their life in order to re-establish 
the electricity. So we're talking about two different systems. United States, as you know, even better than I do, that is completely sort of decentralized. You have the top, Washington, then you have all the states and the cities and all that fighting with each other. Who is going to do what? We saw that in Katrina. Now, Cuba has an entirely different system, and that is why, despite the difficulty, they are able to overcome such a situation. Yeah, and you know, I can't help but feel some opportunism from the part of the United States government and uh, some of these mainstream media platforms as it pertains to the aftermath of Hurricane Inn in Cuba, Arnold, because, you know, I remember it was just July of last year where we also saw uh, some protest um, around conditions inside Cuba uh, because of the pandemic. Of course, you know, like basically everything in the country only sort of worsened and exacerbated by the reality of uh, the U.S. blockade. And we saw Cuban President uh, Miguel Diaz-Canal go out and, uh, you know, sort of be amongst the people and really sort of, you know, being in discussion with them and hearing them on this. And so, you know, I mean, it's my opinion that, I mean, it makes sense for people to express um, frustrations with conditions, whether it be a pandemic or the aftermath of a hurricane. But within the context of U.S. imperialism, I feel like uh, Washington always seeks to uh, try to capitalize and manipulate and, and even skew um, these uh, uh, sorts of happenings to try to carry through their regime change schemes in Cuba, which have been in play for over half a century at this point. And so it, it, to me, it's sort of a dishonest thing to talk about conditions in Cuba or for that matter, Venezuela or the DPRK or a number of other countries without uh, uh, sort of discussing the reality of uh, the U.S. blockade and these economic sanctions and things like that, which just wreak havoc on the conditions of the people. And this is what is confusing to me oftentimes, particularly uh, being here in the United States. And uh, I can imagine it's a similar situation in Canada where you are, Arnold, where the rank and file person in these countries in North America will express a deep feeling for the conditions of uh, the people of Cuba and these other countries, but won't seem to want to challenge um, our respective governments for their role in that suffering. And I know a lot of that has to do with uh, the propaganda, both from the governments themselves and these media platforms. But in reality, I mean, this blockade to me remains the uh, sort of uh, central and really core contradiction within Cuba. And as long as it's in place, it seems that, you know, these issues that are already, you know, deeply impactful, you know, are only uh, uh, amplified. Yes, I, I agree with what you're saying. I guess you mentioned opportunism on the part of the United States. And well, that's a bit of an understatement. It's very <laughs> cynical. Yeah. It's a very cynical attempt by the United States to blame Cuba for its own problems when it's the United States is mainly causing that. Now, you mentioned uh, a very important point in the protest last July uh, 2020, no, 2021, was uh, when the demonstrations took place in the western province of Pinal de Rio. The president of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canel, was there within minutes, you know, with no bodyguards or whatever, but speaking directly to the people, listening to their grievances and all that. Now, where do we ever see this in Canada, United States? Never. 
So, you know, it, it's, a, it's an entirely different thing. And what you say about the blockade, you know, like Ian is not caused by the blockade, obviously. Mm-hmm. It would be crazy to say, oh, this is the United States. <laughs> but the problem is that given the conditions of Cuba, and we're talking about six decades, as you know, Sean, six long decades of the blockade, sanctions, and all that, given anything that happens in Cuba, you cannot subtract it from the con- context of the blockade. And, you know, Cuba has to deal with this uh, current situation post-Ian under the conditions of the blockade, where there are so many shortages, for example, construction materials and things like that, that it affects the irrespective of what happens, one has to put the blame on the American blockade, I agree with you, as the key factor in hindering uh, for example, the full recuperation, full uh, rapid recuperation of the situation in Cuba after Ian. And, uh, you know, that's why we always have to, I, I think that was a very good ad put out by uh, our friends in, uh, in New York, uh, in the New York Times, that, uh, that the United States should, well, how about stopping the blockade just for a few months so Cuba could survive this devastating storm. So, you know, this is what we always, I agree with it, we always have to focus on the uh, United States as a cause. At the same time, there are real problems in Cuba. Speaking to another one of my uh, uh, colleagues, sources in Cuba, he said people are frustrated as a result of Ian and the electricity outages. But he also said that the the request or the, the desires on the part of the Cuban people to build new uh, housing after previous hurricanes that took place one or two years later, that this has not been carried out by the central government. So there's a, a bit of, I would say, you know, um, uh, dissatisfaction with that. But it's also understandable that Cuban government is fighting for its life. You know, <laughs> Trump tried to kill Cuba, right? And Biden is doing the same thing. They're fighting for their life. So people in Cuba, as well as ourselves here in other countries, such as the United States, we have to be uh, wary of, this, of the situation that exists in Cuba, the conditions in which the Cuban government is handling it. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, I think, a related issue in terms of the U.S. putting Cuba on its list of, you know, uh, state sponsors of terrorism, which to me is, uh, frankly, mind blowing because I'm not sure what the justification would be for uh, uh, putting Cuba on such a list. And how do you see that, Arnold, as connected to some of these other pieces that we've been discussing? I mean, what is even the justification for Cuba being placed uh, on this list? And you know, uh, what are the effects? Well, th- this is very important. That, uh, placing Cuba on that list, it affects its capacity, Cuba's capacity to exchange internationally with financial institutions in any parts of the world, not only the United States, but also, for example, in Europe. So, you know, why would a European bank work closely or exchange with a, with a Cuban bank when they know it could be sanctioned for doing so as a result of the fact that the United States has arbitrarily placed Cuba on the, as a state sponsor of terrorism. Of course, you know, pre, what pretext? I don't know. They, they don't really give a pretext. They just <laughs> mentioned that. You know, of course, they may be referring to the fact that uh, Cuba uh, is in contact with the uh, revolutionaries in Cuba. But the fact is, Cuba is actually a key figure 
in trying to establish a peaceful solution in Colombia between the uh, revolutionaries and the Colombian government, which is now possible since the new Petro government has come into power in, in Cuba. Now, there's no other reason that they get, they just basically don't give reason. They just say that it's so. And this took place uh, by Trump just a few days before his mandate came to an end, just a few days before. So it just by, a, just by, a, you know, using a pen, he just signed a declaration. So Biden, obviously, soon as he came to power, his very first days in his first mandate, in the same way, he could have just signed another declaration saying, no, Cuba does not belong on on the list of state sponsors of terrorism. But of course, Biden did not do that at all. And in fact, it's continuing virtually all of the policies uh, of uh, of Trump uh, and even adding uh, other sanctions as well. So I, I guess it goes a long way to show something that I guess we here are all interested, and that is the problem of the two-party system in the United States. You know, how how come that irrespective of different parties, basically it came, comes back, comes down to the very same thing. And that is why I have so much respect for the uh, left-wing organizations in the United States who oppose the two-party system. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Arnold, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moved to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about uh, some different human rights issues. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Kiriakou, co-host of Political Misfits, which you can hear from 12 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on Radio Sputnik. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And John, I know you recently took uh, a couple of trips to uh, London and Jerusalem to sort of uh, uh, do some work, if you will, and some advocacy around a couple of different uh, uh, human rights issues happening in both of those countries. I know on the one hand, uh, you had been, you know, talking to people and journalists and others on the ground, specifically about the issue of um, Julian Assange. And also, I believe, upcoming uh, elections uh, in Israel, and uh, you published a uh, piece about your experiences uh, for Consortium News uh, entitled A Depressing Journey. And so I'm wondering why you had this feeling uh, coming from your trip, and what were these conversations like around these issues while you were on these trips? Right. Well, the formal reason for taking the trip was to talk to British parliamentarians and British journalists about a Nigerian uh, by the name of name of Mazi Namdi Kanu. Uh, Namdi Kanu is the leader of a group called the Indigenous People of Biafra. 
there are about 70 million Biafrans in Nigeria. Uh, they're almost all Christians. Even within that, they're almost all Catholic. Nigeria is a, an officially Muslim country. And many Biafrans want to hold a referendum on independence. There was actually a civil war that lasted from 1967 to 1970 in which Two million Biafrans were killed. Most of them actually were starved to death by the government. And um, and so they were not able to achieve independence. Well, they're thinking about it again. And Namdi Kanu, the leader of, of this Biafran independence movement, gave a, an interview to the BBC. The, the Nigerian government alleges at some point between 2015 and 2018, they can't even say when this interview was. And in the interview, he allegedly called for Biafran independence. Well, they charged him with treason in absentia and they've sentenced him to death. Uh, last year, he was in Kenya to speak with Biafrans in exile, and he was kidnapped by Kenyan police and rendered to Nigeria, and he's been held in solitary confinement ever since. So a good friend of mine, uh, Bruce Fine, is the attorney who represents Namdi internationally, and uh, – Bruce sort of asked me for, for help in, in lobbying and press outreach. That's why we went to London. The real disappointment there is that Nandi is a, a British citizen. His wife is British. His child is British. They live in Manchester. And, um, and the Brits weren't terribly interested in doing anything, not even in making a statement. Now, we've already gone to the United Nations, and the United Nations um, uh, Human Rights Council issued a statement saying that Namdi should be released immediately, that the Nigerians violated 16 different international laws, and he should be given restitution. The Brits said, well, and th these were private conversations. They wouldn't say this publicly, but I certainly will. They said Namdi's not really British. He's naturalized and he's black. And so we're not really interested in doing anything, including even making a public statement. Well, Namdi is one of those rare Biafrans who converted from Catholicism to Judaism. So we went on to Jerusalem to try to engage the Israeli government in uh, making a statement calling for his release. Now, the Israelis back in 1967 supported Biafran independence, but we got the same response in Israel. He's not really Jewish. He's a convert to Judaism. His mother's not Jewish and he's black and they come right out and say this. So they're not willing to make a, a statement either. I, I took the opportunity of every one of these meetings, Sean, to ask also about Julian Assange. And that was that was a, a separate and equally disappointing story to tell. Yeah. And what did happen uh, during those uh, conversations about uh, Julian Assange and how does it sort of fold into uh, sort of the, the broader thrust of your trip here? Yeah, you know, it, it really does fold into the broader thrust, which was which was human rights. Everybody told us, and I mentioned in the piece, I spoke to arguably the most important uh, journalists in the UK. I'm not talking about alternative media. I'm not talking about The Sun or The Observer. I'm talking about serious Financial Times, The Times of London, BBC, ITN, ITV. These are serious, major household name journalists. And they all said the same thing, that that. Liz Truss, for all of her go-it-alone, 
imperialist uh, uh, language that she's been using. Uh, she's just Washington's lapdog. She'll do literally anything that the White House tells her to do. And the White House is telling her to extradite Julian Assange. Everybody was unanimous in their position that Julian Assange doesn't stand a prayer of remaining in the UK or of being released while in the UK. They were unanimous in their position that he will be extradited to the United States. Yeah, and I feel like that's actually kind of an aspect of the whole Julian Assange case that um, kind of doesn't get um, really acknowledged. And that is how the relationship with or between rather the U.S. and Britain really impacts the case of Assange and about how, you know, Britain is sort of solidly uh, a junior partner type of uh, position to the United States. And as you say, is likely to go along with uh, whatever Washington wants to do, even if it may be um, to their own detriment. And so it, it really feels like, I mean, because we're talking about Julian Assange, an individual, someone who's being punished really for doing journalism. And even though he's just one person, he's very much someone who is uh, being affected by the dynamics of uh, uh, these uh, geopolitical relationships. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, for me, it's just a reminder of really just how deep his case uh, uh, really goes and really a big part of the reason why these same powers find it necessary to, you know, uh, uh, attack Julian Assange. Assange to begin with and want to extradite him to the U.S. so that he can uh, basically just, uh, you know, languish uh, in prison, likely in the worst conditions uh, for the rest of his life. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. Um, there, There's a difference in the way Julian is seen uh, by British journalists and by American journalists. British journalists see him as a journalist, as a publisher, but as one who has run so far afoul of American authorities that there's just nothing that can be done to save him. So he's going to be extradited. He's going to be tried for uh, espionage, a whole bunch of charges of espionage, and good luck to him. In the United States, these mainstream big name journalists, and, and I've heard this from the Washington Post, the New York Times, Knight Ritter, they don't believe that he's a journalist. They won't even acknowledge that he's a publisher. They say he's an activist. And that's why they haven't come out, at least their editorial boards haven't come out to say, whoa, wait a minute. If Julian Assange is prosecuted on charges of espionage for receiving what may have been national defense information, then every single one of us are in danger of espionage charges just for doing our job. If Julian is prosecuted here, if he's prosecuted successfully, let me let me correct that, then every Washington Post and New York Times journalist who covers national security uh, is going to be uh, in danger of being arrested and charged with espionage just for doing his job. If you look at the Washington Post or the New York Times, literally every single day when they're quoting Anonymous sources from the White House, the Pentagon, the intelligence community, that's a violation of the Espionage Act as this administration and the two previous administrations have chosen to interpret it. So this could turn journalism on its ear. They recognize that in the UK, not that they care so much or think that they can do anything about it. They don't recognize that here in the US. 
Yeah, and you know, I'm also wondering about uh, your trip to Israel, John, which in your piece on Consortium News, you describe as being worse. And this was in the context about um, the upcoming November uh, uh, elections in Israel. And uh, number one, if you could just maybe help us understand, you know, who uh, uh, who are the main major players uh, in this upcoming election in Israel? And what was the feeling that you got on the ground just from what you were discussing uh, pe- you know, with people about it? Oh, you bet. So the the major players are are three. Uh, there's Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, who's the head of the Likud bloc. There's Benny Gantz, uh, who calls himself a liberal. He's a former four-star general and uh, head of a group called the Blue and White Party. And there's Yair Lapid, who's currently the caretaker prime minister, but represents, like Naftali Bennett uh, before him, they, they represent these um, Russian and Ukrainian immigrants to Israel. There's been so much Russian and Ukrainian immigration that it's it's changed the entire complexion of the country. So not three, but four, these four people. Um, everybody that I spoke to was was unanimous in their belief that this election on November 1st is not going to be any different from the previous four elections. Part of the problem is that there are so many political parties in Israel And they've got this proportional representation system where, you know, if you win 5% of the vote, you're going to be represented in parliament. And so it's literally impossible for any party to – to win a, a majority. Every government is a is a coalition government. And so everybody said the same thing, that, that what this election is about is security, number one. And number two, either you want Bibi Netanyahu or you don't want Bibi Netanyahu. And everybody seemed to think that just the barest plurality want Netanyahu. And they believe he'll be able to cobble together a coalition government again. And the next prime minister of Israel is going to be Netanyahu. Yeah. And I mean, this this seems to be I mean, Israeli politics just seem like kind of on a I don't know, like a hamster wheel or something like that to where it always seems to kind of revert back to Netanyahu. And what's wild about Israel politically is that, you know, you supposedly have these different elements, like you say, you know, so-called liberals, so-called centrists. But ultimately, I mean, whoever these elements are and whoever their representatives, I mean, they really, if ever, actually stray from uh, the basic program of Israel uh, uh, that's been laid out for some time, certainly as it con- concerns the um, abuse and ongoing genocide uh, against the, the, the mm-hmm. Palestinians and all these uh, uh, sorts of things. And just in thinking about this, uh, uh, John, because we were just mentioning a moment ago about the relationship between the U.S. and Britain and how uh, that impacts Julian Assange as an individual. But but I'm wondering what you make of really, you know, in terms of how this uh, uh, Israel election may play out, what it could mean for the relationship between the U.S. and Israel. Also, you know, obviously Israel, an important um, outpost for U.S. interest, at least in my opinion, there in uh, uh, the region. And it seems that, you know, anyone who comes to power will basically uh, have to be a to that indeed. I don't see them winning if they aren't. And so what do you make of that dynamic between uh, Washington and, and Jerusalem in terms of how this upcoming election may play out? 
That's really a great question, Sean. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not an Israel expert. And so I went into this trip with kind of an open mind, right? Willing to be convinced on a variety of different issues, the Palestinian issue not being one of them. But, um, but anyway, I, I was just as a, as a little aside, I was walking through the, uh, the old city of Jerusalem. I was walking toward the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. And it was about nine o'clock at night. And I happened to see this handbill that somebody had glued to a wall. And it said, um, America, stand firm. We are with you. And I was like, what in the world is that supposed to mean? Because first of all, we don't really, I, I personally don't want them to be with us, whatever that means. And, uh, and I w- went over to take a closer look at this thing. It was put up recently, but it had Donald Trump's face and it had Benjamin Netanyahu's face. And what they were with us on is just crushing the Palestinians. You know, I put in this consortium news piece, um, I met with a cabinet minister. I I don't want to say which one, but he's quite an important member of the cabinet. He saw us in the Knesset. It was all very formal. And I asked him, what probably was a naive question. I asked him if there was any role for the Arab-Israeli party in a coalition government like there was in the last coalition government. And he said the craziest thing. He said, the thing about you Americans is you think we hate the Palestinians and we don't hate the Palestinians because you can't hate another human being. The Palestinians, though, he said, are animals. And we hate animals. And that that just kind of that just kind of encapsulated the whole trip. If you go to the I'm using air quotes here, the Israel part of Israel, it looks like any modern American city. It, it actually when I went to Tel Aviv, it actually looked like Atlanta to me. Oh, wow. You know, in terms of the big skyscrapers and and beautiful greenery, it's a beautiful city, just beautiful and expensive. But then you go to these Palestinian villages and it's as bad as any third world country I've ever I've ever been to. It's shocking the the dichotomy between how Israelis live and how Palestinians live. And the Israelis want to keep the Palestinians down and make it so bad for them that they elect to emigrate to the United States or the UK or Jordan or wherever. Just get out. That's what they want. Wow. I mean, that's pretty incredible. I'm not even sure what word to use. The fact I, that I was this, shocked by it. Yeah. I mean, the fact that this person would, uh, would, would, would say this to you. But, I mean, in reality, that's, uh, I mean, I think that's a, a sort of realistic and, frankly, a kind of honest expression of Israel's uh, fundamental policy. I mean, the idea to think that, I mean, basically he's saying it's okay to uh, hate Palestinians because they're beneath us and that if they were human, then, yes. uh, you know, they would be a-okay, I suppose. But I mean, this is sort of the, the, the twisted logic of uh, Zionism that is supported by the United States to the tune yes. of three and four billion dollars every single year. And that actually leads me to like uh, the next thing I wanted to touch on, um, uh, uh, John, in terms of how 
the U.S. for all of its, you know, proclamations about championing human rights and things like that is really an incredible human rights abuser, not only in this country, but all across the globe. And what we've discussed today in terms of Assange and the plight of the Palestinians is really uh, just two uh, examples. And so for all of the finger wagging that uh, the U.S. does on the question of human rights, I mean, it clearly has no leg to stand on on moral or otherwise. Oh, listen, when I was there, (laughs) this is going to sound just insane. But when I was there, the Israelis um, passed a regulation in the West Bank saying that if you're a foreign national, right, you're not an Israeli citizen and you have um, sex with a Palestinian, you have to report that you've had sex within 24 hours to the nearest police station, right? Can you imagine this? And they they register, well, this person's pro-Palestinian because he just had sex with a Palestinian. There was such an outrage in just the few days that I was there that they revoked this uh, this regulation. It even made CNN. But this is just normal business. The, the Palestinians are treated as subhumans. And when you dehumanize a person, psychologists and psychiatrists have told us this repeatedly over the decades, when you dehumanize a person, it makes it easier for you to to kill them, to abuse them, to torture them, to treat them in ways that you would never treat a human being. And that's what we see every day in Israel. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back top of the hour. It is Tuesday, October 4th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Our rappers are standing by. You can also check us out at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear us on sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash BAM necessary. And as always, we are streaming live from Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And I'm happy to be joined for the hour today by the producer of By Any Means Necessary, Josh Gomez. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sean. And you know, to kick things off today, Josh, I kind of want to... uh talk about some entertainment 
and some pop culture news, right? Uh, I know recently we uh, both uh, had the opportunity to see the movie Nope, which starred uh, Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer, uh, Stephen Yun, who people may remember from The Walking Dead and other such things. Keith David, personal favorite of mine, you know, was the was the voice of Spawn back in the uh, the, the the 90s HBO cartoon. It was a great series. Didn't get a chance to finish and all these sorts of things. And this was a Jordan Peele piece. Uh, a very interesting take on, I think, some some uh, usually well-worn territory. I guess this is the point where I give a, a, a spoiler alert, although, I mean, it's been in theaters for some time. I'm a little surprised it still is. I just looked it up. It's still running. But, I mean, uh, suffice to say that basically there are, you know, aliens involved. It's about, uh, you know, Daniel Kaluuya, his family owns this ranch uh, with horses. They, you know, put him in movies and, and things like that. And and uh, they encounter an alien presence and ultimately figure out a way to defeat it. And I'm just kind of interested in what you thought, you know, about Nope Josh, the imagery, how they sort of uh, grappled with the subject matter and things like that. And what you kind of walked away from this film with. Sean, that is such a big question, um, <laughs> but I really appreciate it. And I also will reiterate your spoiler alert because a lot of my thoughts uh, about the movie, movie are very much wrapped up in in the major plot points of of the film. So again, spoiler alert. But um, you know, I really liked this this film from Jordan Peele, in in part because it's a little bit of a departure from his previous two films, Get Out and Us, in that there isn't like there isn't a social commentary message that's very like in your face or something that's very uh. Uh, shall we say, like something? I I don't know. The, the best way to describe it is newsy. Although I I don't like that description. It's not something that's uh, necessarily being pointed out or confronting uh, the viewer every day. And that is that the point of this uh, movie is to talk about spectacle and to talk about um, how spectacle and uh, it, it's not really. Uh, I don't know if it's really a point made by uh, the film, but uh, about violent spectacle, how that's. Uh, how that is exploited uh, for profit and for how uh, violence itself is, is made to be this, uh, I, I don't know, this, this way to, to, to profit from uh, somebody else's pain. I mean, uh, to, again, to not get like, too into spoilers, but like the movie opens with a very violent scene um, of a monkey uh, covered in blood. Um, and then we find out later that one of the characters who was uh, was uh, was on that scene was in that was involved with that scene is profiting from that violence from his trauma, um, and so you know it's it's a really interesting thing because uh, it's not it's not something that you really think about every day, but the way that that not only our entertainment media but also our news media really exploit just really, really violent, uh, violent things. I mean, we uh, see images of black people being killed by the police on the news whenever it makes the national news, uh, which is uh, not always uh, the case. But those images repeat over and over and over again because it's a, it's a way of getting people to watch 
uh, watch the news and consume the media. So, you know, I thought it was a really, really interesting uh, media critique. Uh, and, you know, yeah, it, it, you know, to, put, to put things in a nutshell, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting take on, on our entertainment media and how, how it uses violence to, to really extract uh, viewership and, and in turn profit. Yeah, definitely. That's a very interesting take that you have about uh, the movie Nope serving as a kind of commentary on violent spectacle. Certainly, uh, I think that that was uh, sort of articulated through the film, like you say, uh, with uh, the character who was a child actor when there was like this horrific freak accident on this uh, TV show where this, you know, monkey attacked and mauled and, and in one case sort of, you know, brutally disfigured one of the uh, actresses who uh, uh, apparently he still had some kind of friendship or a relationship with and even brought her out uh, to, you know, his show or whatever. And he was literally capitalizing off of it in a serious way, as you mentioned. And even the way that he talked about it, right? It's like he talked about this, what should have been like a deeply traumatic, <laughs> devastating thing. I mean, you are a child watching a uh, uh, an animal just savage other human beings right in front of you and, you know, could have very well done the same thing to you. Although because of the connection you had through the show, you were spared that. And, uh, you know, by the way, you like saw this monkey killed right in front of you after he went on his rampage, you know what I mean? And so it's just very sort of unsettling the way that he seems to almost take joy. It's like he, he, he speaking about it uh, puts him in this place of like nostalgia and even talked about how some, excuse me, about how some couple like paid money to like sleep in a room full of the mementos from that very show. But I think it's true. I think that, in our culture, in American uh, a popular culture, there is a kind of uh, a bloodlust, frankly. There's this weird infatuation, like you say, with violence and with violent spectacle. And just in thinking about it, I feel like we're seeing that right now with um, this whole Jeffrey Dahmer miniseries piece that people are talking about a lot. Uh, but, excuse me. I haven't seen this, but uh, my understanding, it's 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 a scripted piece that is sort of a dramatization of the Jeffrey Dahmer case. Uh, reportedly, a lot of the families of the victims are not happy that this, you know, really happened. Uh, they felt like it's being handled, you know, uh, in an insensitive way. But I mean, I mean, it's one thing for people to watch something and enjoy it or be entertained by it. And even in our cultural moment for some years at this point, like a few years, definitely since the advent of podcasts, true crime has been like a very, very popular genre, whether we're talking about serial, uh, uh, whether we're talking about all the different, uh, you know, shows about serial killers, uh, uh, cults, all these sorts of things that people just seem to really have a kind of obsession with. But with Jeffrey Dahmer, it's like this Jeffrey Dahmer piece is taken to a whole other level because I mean, you know, people are like expressing like physical attraction to this person who was like a brutal murderer and cannibal and things like this and a rapist, as we know. And it's just odd that there's like a fandom for or Jeffrey Dahmer, which actually 
sorry to say, is like not that uncommon when it comes to, you know, uh, serial killers and things like this. There, 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 you know, seems to usually be some kind of weird element of, you know, people just, uh, like I say, being infatuated with these people and, and the acts that they've created. And so to me, I think it speaks to a sickness that's sort of bred in us by capitalist culture to where instead of being reviled by that kind of violent spectacle, we're engrossed by it. You know what I mean? And I feel like that speaks to, uh, uh, frankly, a kind of uh, a festering uh, issue within all of us uh, that I think shows how capitalism can really impugn your humanity to the point where you see the suffering uh, of others as not only something that entertains you, but something that like gratifies you on some level. And, uh, you know, and to be honest, I'm not even sure where that leaves us other than to say it's it's disquieting that it's such a strong trend here in this society. You know, absolutely, Sean, when you were, uh, you know, spelling all of that out for us, like my mind couldn't help but go to some of the more famous uh, war movies, of which there are many, uh, and how a lot of them rely on gratuitous violence. Um, even if they have uh, a generally anti-war uh, message. Uh, of course, right here, I'm thinking of uh, Full Metal Jacket from Stanley Kubrick, maybe one of the most famous um, anti-war movies uh, Movies there is. But, I mean, you're right. Even uh, even films that have such a, a anti-violence and anti-war message are relying on that violence to sell, essentially. And that it, it says a very... It sets a very a very interesting and a very disturbing uh, standard and a disturbing and says something disturbing about what sells and what, what is, what is uh, presumed to be able to sell uh, on this market. And it really just says some disturbing stuff about, you know, film studios, film production and, and the like. Definitely. Well, uh, we have our guest on today for the hour, and I want you all to join me in welcoming Bryce Green, a contributor to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, otherwise known as FAIR, which you can check out at FAIR.org. Bryce, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And uh, Bryce, yeah, we were just sort of shooting the breeze about uh, the movie Nope that we saw uh, recently and sort of having kind of a broader conversation about uh, violent spectacle in media and popular culture and the kind of obsession that we see with it um, in our society. Now, I don't know if you've seen the movie or if you <laughs> had any thoughts in general, particularly as someone who is a reporter and seeing about how this violence can be sort of uh, uh, glorified and sensationalized a lot of times through uh, media and popular art, but uh, how do you see it? Uh, right, yeah, I did, I did see that movie, and I caught the the tail end of your the conversation about uh, like Jeffrey Dahmer and the 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 all the weird cultural stuff coming out about that. Um, all the people being attracted to him, all the people uh, sort of ideal idolizing him. In fact, I saw a, a picture just this morning about someone painted a Jeffrey Dahmer mural on some building, like. Like that's weird, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think the, it wraps in with the themes of Nope pretty well. I mean, the whole movie is about how far we're willing to go and to debase ourselves and to detach ourselves for the spectacle. And you know, that's a sign of a, a real sick society—a society where uh, achieving the spectacle is the highest, the highest aim. Uh, and, and you know, that can get you into a lot of a lot of dark places. 
Yeah, I think so. And even as you were uh, breaking that down, Bryce, I was thinking about how on the show we talk a lot about the rot that has set in in uh, American society, uh, you know, from our standpoint, because of the contradictions of the capitalist system and how it has just waylaid the conditions of poor, working and oppressed people in this country. And I feel like this phenomenon that we're discussing, this 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 lust for uh, violence and gore, I can't help but feel like it's a direct connection to that, because when you're in a society and living under a system that divorces you, not only from your own humanity, but separates you from other people and vulgarizes human relationships because of the machinations of that system. Well, it seems to me that the further people are driven from just a fundamental, you know, core of humanity is, I think, the more we're going to see these kinds of anti-social trends, if that's even an accurate way to describe it. You know what I mean? And so I tend to feel that really the issue may be less about Dahmer and more of a uh, commentary, something that uh, uh, is emblematic of uh, so many contradictions and issues that we're dealing with in our uh, uh, society right now. So in a weird way, it's almost like we're, you know, conditioned, you know, to be in love with monsters or with beasts, because this is the kind of, uh, 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 you know, animalistic uh, uh, way of being, thinking and feeling that people have been pushed to because of, uh, uh, frankly, having all of that humanity being sort of bled dry kind of by this system. You know what I mean? You're exactly right. And speaking of contradictions, conditioning and the rot of our country, I mean, I think about this all the time. Uh, we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. You go to a, a city like L.A., there's opulence beyond imagination. But, you know, you see uh, Bugatti driving down the street, uh, and the street on the side of it has, you know, homeless camps aside. And all throughout life, all throughout American life, uh, people are raised to just walk through and see that contrast and just accept it as reality. And so it really divorces the humanity from us. You know, people brag about not giving money to homeless people uh, because, you know, that won't help them. Uh, yeah, like you're helping them in any other way. And you're, and you're this is drilled into you from such a young age. You know, you walk around in any city, you're bound to see homeless people and you're bound to stigmatize them. And you're bound to see all of that right next to uh, the magnificent wealth and opulence and decadence uh, that our culture has generated. And so already from a young age, we're being taught to distance ourselves from uh, the humanity of others and to accept these sorts of things as normal. Meanwhile, the some of the most violent episodes in American history, um, you know, the violence we met at around the world, that's thought of with indifference. In fact, it's cheered on by some people. Uh, you know, people were cheering on the Afghanistan invasion, cheering on the Iraq war, cheering on the bombing of Syria, bombing of Libya. Uh, you know, I remember uh, one of the media was uh, so uh, against Trump, and rightly so, he's despicable. But the first moment that they turned on him, or that they turned around and started liking him, was when he bombed Syria. I remember Brian Williams talking about how great it was, I, or someone. Who's talking about this was the day that Trump became president. And so in our American culture, 
the ability to met out violence and to debase yourself from your humanity is, you know, seen as a high virtue. And that sort of rot really spills into every aspect of American culture. And uh, that's probably why, uh, you know, we have the insane gun culture here and we have the insane, uh, uh, unprecedented anywhere on earth, the, the school shooting culture here. It's really difficult to say school shooting culture, but I mean, that's what we have. And that doesn't happen in a healthy society. A lot of the things I've just been talking about doesn't happen in a healthy society. And of course, its roots are in the contradictions in our, uh, uh, in our capitalist, in our uh, economic system that we're being forced to endure. Yeah, I think you're so right about that, because in truth, how could we not be in a moment where people are feeling more and more divorced from both their own humanity and that of others when this very country is literally founded on genocide and slavery and uh, basically sustains itself as a world imperialist power through endless war? You know what I mean? And so what I think is really at the core of this, what it exposes is the fundamental inhumanity and cruelty of capitalism itself. And this is why we always make the point on the show that if what we want is a society that centers the interest of humanity instead of, you know, putting a, a price tag on it, well, then we're going to need to be about the business of bringing about a new society where that is in fact the case. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch 10 DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Continue to be joined by Bryce Green. And uh, Bryce, switching gears a little bit to some news here, I wanted to touch on this issue of the sabotage of the Nord Stream pipeline. And the response from the U.S. government, I think, is more than a little uh, uh, noteworthy. I mean, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was recently in a joint press conference with uh, Canadian Foreign Minister uh, Melanie Jolie, if I'm saying her name correctly, and he was describing uh, this, uh, this, this, this sabotage or this explosion, as it were, of the Nord Stream pipeline. He said, quote, it's a tremendous opportunity to once and for all remove the dependence on Russian energy and thus take away from Vladimir Putin the weaponization of energy as a means of advancing his imperial designs. That's very significant and that offers tremendous strategic opportunity for the years to come. Now, of course, you know, over the years, uh, uh, Washington has all, always been working to try to, you know, uh, uh, oppose or stop the advance of the Nord Stream 2, mainly through sanctions and things like that. But they weren't successful in stopping its construction. And so, you know, pretty convenient uh, for the U.S. then. For this to happen, I mean, there are uh, a lot of elements, uh, a lot of leaders that are 
also saying that this was sabotage. I believe even NATO uh, 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 has made that claim, even though uh, it seems like uh, uh, these elements have studiously avoided uh, trying to assign blame to anyone. I mean, there are some people out there who are blaming Russia uh, for blowing it up, even though that would make absolutely no sense. And a lot of people think that the United States is responsible for sabotaging this pipeline. And this is not some fringe belief I'm talking about either. I mean, I saw a clip. I think I even saw you post it on your uh, Twitter page, Bryce, of uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who, you know, is not some uh, ranting, raving uh, lefty. He's a professor, I believe, at a Columbia University who went on Bloomberg and basically, you know, said as much that he had these suspicions about um, uh, the U.S. being involved. And that caused uh, quite a stir. And he but, you know, he kind of had a good sense of humor about it. But, you know, and with Blinken saying things like this, it doesn't inspire a, a lot of confidence that Washington wasn't involved for me personally. But uh, I'm curious uh, what you make of this whole situation and uh, uh, how you're sort of analyzing the coverage of it that we've been seeing. Uh, right. Well, uh, well, first, let's look at the coverage. What, what are what are the mainstream sources saying? Uh, well, you take the near the Washington Post, who was talking about how Tucker Carlson was, you know, uh, advocating the idea that the United States was behind this attack, uh, and you know they panned him, they trashed him, they said he's a conspiracy theorist and he's spreading lies, and his case is uh, uh, quote unquote shoddy, and then they go on to make a even shoddier case for Russian involvement, and you you've seen this conspiracy theory line touted out multiple times. You've seen it in the Associated Press. You saw it in Business Insider. You saw it in uh, Fox or Vice. I get the two mixed up. Um, but, you know, it's a common narrative. And this is before any evidence has even been produced. And they're saying that Ru- only Russia would have the motive to do this and only Russia would have the means to do this. Now, both of those claims are absurd on their face. Uh, as far as motives go, I mean, you don't even need to look that far back to see how ingrained opposition to this Nord Stream pipeline was in uh, U.S. policy circles. I mean, uh, Tony Blinken, and during his, uh, during his uh, what do you call it, confirmation hearing, um, he said that I was going to use every tool I have to stop the Nord Stream from being done. Uh, and lo and behold, a month later, the State Department issued sanctions against any company who's working on the Nord Stream. Uh, Russia, who has been working extremely hard to get this Nord Stream online, uh, ended up finishing it themselves, uh, despite the despite the threat of U.S. sanctions, because the German companies weren't going to do it. Uh, and so this was completed, uh, and it was ready to start flowing oil. Uh, and then the Ukraine war started, and so Germany said, uh, uh, Germany under U.S. direction said, no, we're going to stop this pipeline. Uh, we're going to not – don't turn it on, and we'll talk about it later. Uh, so the U.S. has been extremely opposed to this pipeline uh, all – as a matter of strategic policy. Uh, now, you might ask why. Why is the U.S. opposed to this pipeline? Well, part of the U.S. grand strategy has been to subordinate Europe to Western markets and, or to American markets and to prevent its economic integration with uh, Russia and China. Um, there, there was a recent report that showed that China was Europe's top trading partner, beating the United States. Well, that must have sent a lot of panic uh, in the halls in Washington. Uh, and, and, you know, Europe gets a lot of its gas from Russia. And so if Europe can't get gas from Russia, well, then where can they get gas from? 
The answer is United States corporations. Um, they've been ecstatic throughout this entire Ukraine war because the, the spike in the price of oil means that they get more profits. And that's reflected in the numbers. If you look at the, the, profit, the profits of these companies over the last several months, they are enormous. They are off the charts. Uh, and so there's your motive there. There's your motive for the United States uh, blowing up this pipeline. And if you look at the coverage, none of this is reported. Absolutely none of it. Uh, the only time they mention uh, the, Bi- the Biden administration's opposition to the pipeline is they, uh, they cite that clip of him speaking earlier this January about how uh, he promises that the Nord Stream 2 will not be completed. Um, and they say, oh, well, he was just talking about finding ways to prevent the Germans from completing it. He wasn't talking about blowing it up. Uh, well, you know, that's a pretty juvenile way of understanding it. What it establishes is that the U.S. was opposed to the pipeline and thus had motive to blow it up. Uh, and as for the means to do it, I mean, the idea that the U.S. doesn't have the ability to plant undersea explosives via via drone, but Russia does, I mean, that's just absurd in space. I don't even think I need to justify that. Uh, the Baltic Sea is uh, extremely shallow. I think it's something like 200 or 300 feet deep. Uh, people were talk, experts were talking about how uh, divers could have potentially done this. Um, so the U.S. absolutely has the means. They absolutely have the motive. Um, and Russia does not have a motive. And so, uh, but the coverage doesn't reflect this. The coverage has uniformly and reflexively spat and, and downplayed any idea that the U.S. could be responsible for this. Yeah, and you know, Bryce, the the projection is crazy, right? Because, I mean, to to accuse someone uh, of raising the idea that the U.S. could be involved and likely was in this sabotage and accusing them of, you know, being conspiratorial is pretty wild, considering that the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, last time I checked, cost something like $11 billion dollars to construct, right? And to me, since Russia controls this pipeline, if what they were seeking to do was to shut off the supply of this gas, all they had to do was turn it off. Why would they blow up their own $11 billion pipeline? That's a baseless conspiracy. You know what I mean? But see, here again, when we talk about narratives, because this is a narrative that is... Um, coming forth within the context of years and years and years of demonization and propaganda uh, uh, and Russophobia as it pertains to Russia in general, certainly Vladimir Putin in uh, uh, particular as an individual. And so since um, these elements have been thoroughly poisoned in the consciousness of the American people, when you turn around and say, yeah, they, they had motive and means to blow up their $11 billion pipeline, well, it makes sense. And so I feel like that in and of itself is kind of an example um, of the uh, media landscape that we're dealing with. I mean, this is the same corporate owned media that gave us the Russiagate myth, which I think continues to have serious impacts both on uh, uh, certainly on the media and also on the politics of uh, the United States. You know what I mean? And so particularly it's kind of ironic. In this age where, you know, everybody's so, you know, up in arms about so-called misinformation, the U.S. is warning us about misinformation from Russia, 
misinformation from China. Somehow, misinformation only comes from the countries that the U.S. deems as its enemies. But we're to believe then, because the implication is that what the U.S. government and uh, corporate media tells us is, in fact, the correct uh, information. As a matter of fact, we should be so protective of that that we have to uh, deplatform and try to suppress any alternative uh, uh, view or perspective or thought or narrative that comes. And not only do we have to suppress and deplatform it, we have to frame it as lunacy. We have to frame it as conspiracy theory. We have to frame it basically as treason. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that in the United States. If you have the audacity to raise just relevant context about these kind of things, like let's say the role of NATO in uh, uh, the ongoing war in Ukraine, if you suggest that anyone besides Vladimir Putin has has any culpability in this war, well, then you're like basically either overtly or, or covertly, I mean to say implicitly or explicitly, accused of like betraying America. You know what I mean? And so that I think is also a part of that same rot that we were talking about a little earlier, although in this way, it's more of um, kind of a political rot that is absolutely assisted by these ruling class stenographers that call themselves journalists. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it was shocking, the uniformity with which they all had the same message, um, you know, excluding Tucker Carlson. You know, a broken clock can be right sometimes, even if you don't like him. You have to acknowledge the fact that in this case, he's at least asking the right questions in a serious way. Uh, but the, the press response, like I said, was insane. I mean, the Washington Post even published a story, uh, you know, attacking Tucker Carlson when in the headline they translated his name. Uh, into Russian, and it was in the, the <laughs> uh, like it, it's just it, it's comical. Uh, and you know, the sad part is that when if this turns out, if this actually is admitted to be the U.S., if the, some investigative body points the fingers at the U.S., no one in the media is going to take a second look. No one in the media is going to say, "Hey, we got this wrong. We screwed up. Here's what we can do better." Our ideology blinded us, and we're going to change it. No, absolutely no. No one's going to do that. They're going to ignore it, and they're going to pretend like they're still the trusted source uh, of news and information uh, that everyone should listen to. Uh, and there will be no self-reflection. There will be no shame. Uh, and so that's why that's why alternative media is so so important for breaking through. Uh, uh, what the what blogger Caitlin Johnstone calls the narrative matrix, <laughs> a little bit of a, a, a an intense term, but I mean that's really what's going on here. There's so there's so many uh, mirrors, smoke and mirrors, designed to obfuscate the truth from the people, uh, designed to make it so that it's really hard to figure out what's going on. Uh, but if you can break through the fog a little bit, I mean it becomes clear the American media system functions as a propaganda organ of the United States. Uh, regardless if if it's, you know, ostensibly free. I was telling a friend earlier, like, if this is a free press, it's certainly not a serious press. They're certainly not serious about doing their jobs. They're certainly not serious about finding the truth and uh, presenting the facts of the audience. They're interested in presenting one side, one narrative, uh, and like I said, with uniformity. 
Yeah, a free press uh, funded by billionaires. It's uh, pretty wild how, how it all plays out. And sort of speaking of Ukraine, Bryce, I mean, it's being reported that the U.S. is set to deliver four more advanced rocket systems to Ukraine as a part of its ongoing military aid. And this also comes as Ukrainian President Volodymyr uh, uh, Zelensky basically signed into law a decree that I believe is is coming from the uh, National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine that basically legally affirms that it is impossible to come to uh, 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 peace terms with Vladimir Putin. And of course, this follows the uh, uh, referendums in those four Ukrainian regions of uh, the breakaway republics of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, Kherson and, and Zaporozhia that, you know, uh, speaking of the, you know, uh, 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 universe, uh, universality and the oneness of narrative were sort of, uh, you know, broadly written off as a sham by the West and things like that. Uh, of course, uh, we were talking just yesterday about Vladimir Putin, uh, the speech that he gave at um at um, uh, uh, a ceremony to basically sign, you know, the agreements uh, affirming the whole peace and all those sorts uh, of things. And uh, it just honestly, the more this rolls on, Bryce, with the continuing of military aid, this uh, uh, just digging in of the heels of Zelensky himself guilty of no small amount of repression within uh, his own country, it's clear that we are at a very dangerous moment in global politics. And there doesn't seem to be, uh, uh, you know, a real force within it that's uh, really seeking to uh, roll it back. Now, this is precisely what we were hearing, I believe, from the uh, United Nations General Assembly. I feel like a lot of the leaders who got up and spoke, among other things, uh, spoke about the need uh, for peace and things like that. And the the wild thing about it is this is precisely what Washington wanted, in my humble opinion, in terms of how the U.S., instigated uh, this war in Ukraine and then used Ukraine as uh, a proxy to get at the real target, uh, which is uh, uh, Russia. And as we know and often point out, an open conflict between these two nuclear uh, powered uh, states, these governments could have catastrophic potential for humanity as we know it. And see, this 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 reminds me of another sort of narrative piece that we often hear about, you know, the nuclear threat from uh, uh, Russia. Sometimes we hear similar, you know, well, often I should say, we hear similar things about uh, the DPRK and Iran and things like that. And when you look at these things, you know, one would think that, uh, that that somehow all these other countries had dropped nukes, you know, on uh, other nations. But in reality, the U.S., the United States uh, is the only country that has done that. But again, this deflection and this misdirection and this projection to try to um, basically take the crimes of the U.S. and preemptively accuse others of it. And it it doesn't really uh, bode well for how things are are moving forward here, Bryce. And for me, you know, uh, uh, this is a movement show, if you will. You know, I feel strongly that there has to be a strong, militant, organized, anti-war and anti-imperialist movement that is going to really uh, uh, fight against what we're seeing here because 
if, you know, the ruling class gets its way, if the U.S. government has its way, then, you know, we all could very well be pushed into oblivion. And this is a part of, I think, of the psychosis of uh, this system itself to where even though this would also impact the people that are instigating it, the logic of the system dictates that they do this. You know what I mean? And so, uh, you know, I said a lot there. So feel free to pull from any of it in terms of these latest developments uh, vis-a-vis Ukraine. Yeah, well, I guess the, the the most important thing to understand about this war is that the U.S. was pushing for it, is that the United States uh, has long had an aggressive posture towards Russia. I mean, remember in the run-up to the war, Putin was very clear about a way to de-escalate. He wanted a comprehensive uh, security arrangement in Europe. He wanted a neutral Ukraine, and he wanted U.S. missiles and military bases away from his border. Now, all those are reasonable things, but of course, the U.S. considered this a non-starter. And so uh, they were pushing for the war. And as Ukraine, you know, was, got invaded, uh, the United States poured weapons into the, into the conflict. Um, there was a stat that was reported by uh, Dave DeCamp at antiwar.com that the United States has given Ukraine more military aid in the last you know, 200 days than the entire Russian military budget of 2021. Uh, we've given Ukraine something like $67, $68 billion. The Russian military budget is $65 billion. So that's just a massive, massive amount of money designed to escalate the war. And now Putin himself is escalating by, you know, explicitly uh, waving the, the, the nuclear gun around. He's saying that, yes, we are willing to use nuclear weapons if we think that our state is threatened. Who knows what he means by that? Uh, But the response here in the U.S. has been, let's find out. Let's find out what he means by that. He's bluffing. He's weak. He's not going to do anything. Well, you know, that very may well be true. I don't think so. But I don't want to find out. I don't want to. I don't I don't think that uh, who controls southern Ukraine is worth risking the entirety of humanity over. Uh, And and what you said about the anti-war movement is really one of the stranger aspects of this entire thing. Uh, The anti-war movement has been completely gutted, uh, you know, over the years. And here it seems to be dancing on its grave. Uh, This is the first time I've ever seen pro-war protests uh, in America. You had people marching through the street earlier this year, if you remember, waving flags saying, close the skies, close the skies. We needed a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Well, what does that mean? That means sending U.S. planes to shoot down Russian planes. That means starting war. That means end of humanity. That's game over. And yet you had liberals, progressives even, in the streets, so-called, you know, uh, marching in the street talking about how much they want the U.S. to get more involved in this war. Uh, and, and there's a good paper on this that just came out recently. It's called The, uh, the, the Merging of, uh, of Social Justice Language and Neoconservative Principles. I might be getting that title wrong. I'll send it to you later. But it's basically about how this social justice language is being used to fuel American interventions and imperialism abroad. Right. This whole entire war of you in, in Ukraine is couched as, uh, you know, defending the rights and defending, uh, uh, defending against 
uh, right-wing fascism, uh, and it's, kept in, it's even kept in anti-colonial struggles. I mean, an imperial proxy war is not an anti-colonial struggle by any means. Uh, but this language, yeah, especially around the, you know, the the progressive liberals who use that sort of language, who live in that sort of milieu, uh, they're buying it, hook, line, and sinker. And so they're saying that, yes, it's great that the U.S. military-industrial complex is entrenching itself in yet another country. It's great that we're pouring in weapons to a war zone, and we don't even know where the hell they're going. Uh, this is a great thing because it's fighting against Putin. Since Putin is Hitler, it's a good thing. And this sort of cartoon narrative has been uh, really a mainstay of this entire war. And it's a small segment of the left. And a small segment, uh, I guess an even, a larger segment of the right, is highly critical of the war. They are being cast out as, you know, Russian apologists. Like you said, it's treasonous to doubt the motives of American empire, especially when they're sold to you with such flowery language. Well, that's not a, uh, that's not a recipe for peace. I mean, if we know that Russia considers this a must-win conflict. And we're saying that we're not going to back down either. Well, then there's only one way for this to go. And it ain't pretty. At all. At all. And yeah, please do send me that piece that you're talking about, because I definitely see that at play at a number of levels, uh, excuse me, at a number of levels. And I agree. I also do not believe of Vladimir Putin is bluffing. I don't believe he has a history of that. And I also do not want to find out whether that will be the case or not. I would much rather a, a peace be the way that uh, this uh, would end. And I mean that, you know, specifically through, I mean, the very kind of diplomacy that was being attempted by the Russian and Ukrainian governments before it was scuttled by both the U.S. and U.K. governments. But I want to talk more about this on the other side of our break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. Zero two five two one one three two zero. I am here. Bryce Green is here, and Bryce, I wanted to pick up on uh, a point you made just before we went to the break about progressive-sounding language or social justice uh, uh, language being used uh, basically to facilitate the whims of imperialism and to justify war. And I definitely do remember uh, uh, that period when we had. Uh, people in the streets of the United States protesting in favor of a no-fly zone. Uh, and you spelled out precisely what that means, which would have been uh, in an almost immediate uh, escalation of the conflict. And that was a scary moment because it wasn't really clear uh, uh, what was really going to happen there. It almost reminded me of that moment after Donald Trump ordered uh, uh, the assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. And there was a moment where it felt like we very well might be able to get into open conflict with Iran. And this was not long 
before uh, the pandemic first hit. Th those are some of the last mass uh, anti-war demonstrations that we had, at least here in uh, Washington, D.C., where people really turned out because there was this palpable kind of fear uh, that this would happen. And see, that to me is a classic example of uh, uh, these narratives playing upon the, you know, the, the ignorance of the American populace. And when I say ignorance, I don't mean that as an insult. I mean it literally. Literally, people did not know what a no-fly zone was. I think a lot of folks just conjured up some idea of like, oh, well, if there's nobody flying, nobody will be dropping bombs and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, as, as you uh, explained, a no-fly zone is not something that you can just decree. It is something that would have to be enforced, and that enforced which would come from the U.S. towards Russia would uh, certainly have signaled a kind of escalation. But even in talking about this concept, my mind immediately went back to I can't remember. I think it was back in 2021. I think it was last year when the CIA came out with that, uh, uh, the commercial about, uh, you know, it was the woman. She's like, oh, I'm a Latin woman. I have general anxiety, so on and so forth. She had like the women's liberation logo thing on her shirt. And so, I mean, for lack of a better word, we're supposed to um, uh, uh, accept this as basically like a woke progressive uh, image of the Central Intelligence Agency. And I hate to even, you know, use the word woke in that way, but I think you dig uh, what I'm saying. We're supposed to see that, oh, well, you know, the CIA cares about diversity because not only did they have her, they had one with a black dude, they had one with a gay dude. They're like, hey, the CIA is, you know, uh, uh, open for whoever. You know, if you want to be an intersectional imperialist or whatever, then feel free to fill out an application. Well, see, I feel like that's a good example of how the state can kind of adapt that um, progressive sounding language to these destructive ends. And I think that's precisely how a lot of people in the United States are seduced into supporting things that could quite literally lead to their destruction. And so I think, Bryce, that this is sort of the danger of the mischaracterizations, misrepresentations and outright lies that we see a lot through a uh, U.S. corporate owned media and certainly uh, through our government where people are put in a position where they're basically supposed to to, to cheerlead their own uh, uh, destruction. You know what I mean? Uh, that's exactly right. Now I remember the uh, the commercial you're talking about. I mean, this wasn't this wasn't long after uh, you had headlines uh, you know, fawning over the fact that we had the first female CIA director, Gina Haspel. Um, and there was, you know, little commentary about how she was, you know, running black sites during the CIA's torture program. Bloody Gina. Was caught, uh, you know, destroying tapes, destroying evidence during the investigation. And yet she was rewarded with, you know, not only the CIA directorship, but uh, with completely subservient, fawning, lauding coverage from the mainstream media. Uh, what is that? I mean, that's that's how you, I guess, pink wash or rainbow wash empire. Uh, and, you know, every empire needs an ideology to legitimize their actions, right? I mean, you, you remember the white man's burden, uh, you know, the, the need of, of, of white colonial powers to subjugate the powers of... Uh, uh, to subjugate lesser peoples. Um, and, you know, that justified empire for a time. Uh, you know, the British and the, the missionaries had their civilizing mission 
to bring Christianity to these people. And a lot of people involved in that whole enterprise, they were true believers. And I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, you know, CIA recruits right now who are feeling very good about joining a, a diverse group of spooks. Um, but, you know, there, there's always going to need to be a way to justify that. I mean, during the Cold War, the justification was freedom and anti-communism. Uh, and that was effective. And you still see vestiges of that now in uh, the way we conduct our politics. And so, you know, during the war on terror was freedom and security. And now it's liberation and justice for Ukraine. Uh, it's just another way to sell empire. Um, there's a, a term, it's called a liberal interventionist. Um, and it's really em- embodied by someone named Samantha Power. Mm-hmm. She's now at the State Department, but her whole thing is that the U.S. doesn't do enough abroad to stop atrocities. Um, and she cites uh, Rwanda and uh, you know other other horrific crimes of the 90s as reasons why we should be doing more in the world. And it was her and you know others in the in the State Department who encouraged Obama to start the bombing of Libya, yep. which you know led to the collapse of that country and destabilized the entire region. And in fact, there's a direct line between the destruction of Libya and the the coup in Burkina Faso earlier this week or last week. Uh, I mean, like all these things have ripple effects, but it was justified in the name of protecting people. It was justified in the name of, uh, you know, the interests of these people. Uh, Oh, serious people shouldn't be swayed by these arguments. Serious people should look at them and understand that they're a facade for other policies that the United States has been enacting. Yeah, definitely. And it's so appropriate that you raise Samantha Power, as you say. I mean, one of the hawks of the uh, uh, Obama administration, and yeah, without question, was a big part of plunging Libya uh, into a failed state with uh, open air slave markets and the brutal public lynching of uh, Muammar Gaddafi, whereas Libya was once the most prosperous uh, country on the African continent and was seeking to uh, really strengthen uh, cooperation amongst uh, the African countries when all of this happened, which I do not believe is a coincidence. And see, that's another, I think, defining characteristic of our moment, Bryce, because once upon a time, if you talk to people who were around, you know, a few decades ago, people that were around in the the 70s and the 60s and whatnot. Once upon a time in American mainstream politics, we had, you know, hawks and doves. And we're in uh, a time now where, you know, uh, the doves, the people who were against war, who were against uh, uh, interventionism, uh, they all seem to be dead. And, and only the hawks remain, the war hawks, the people who, you know, who never encounter a war or a conflict that they don't want to push uh, in terms of what it means for the interest of the United States. And I think uh, a striking example of that dynamic is the fact that um, uh, people like uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, you know, were actually uh, talking sense in terms of uh, this whole issue about the war in Ukraine. I mean, we're talking about an honest to goodness war criminal uh, in uh, Henry Kissinger and things like that. And I remember back in May, he was talking about how Ukraine should see territory to Russia and things like that. I mean, you know, in, in a moment where any anything that compromises or backtracks one inch from what the West clearly wants is basically verboten. 
Kissinger, of all people, uh, is someone that that's talking like this. And, uh, you know, and this is someone that that comes from that period. But see, uh, and also when we talk about sort of anti-war narratives and how the whole uh, Dove and Hawk dynamic gets thrown out the window, which I think is how we get the concept of a liberal uh, interventionist, over time we also see those perspectives um, disappear from the mainstream media little by little by little to where we find ourselves now to where they are completely absent. You know what I mean? Once upon a time, you might see uh, some anti-war organizer or activist on some uh, uh, mainstream platform, but that time is is simply no more. It's almost like it's not allowed to be anti-war in the United States, but that actually makes sense when we consider how much of a core industry uh, war and the military is for this country. You noted uh, just a few moments ago uh, this huge, gigantic, bloated war budget that we have, uh, well, that they have, I should say, every year. And I say it's a war budget. It's not a defense budget because it's not really defending anyone. What it's defending are the mega profits of the war profiteers and these defense companies like uh, Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and uh, uh, all these types of uh, uh, corporation. These are the people that that benefit from war. It's not you. It's not me. It's certainly not the people who are on the receiving end of all these bombs and weapons and things like that. You know what I mean? And so this becomes an even sicker seeming reality, Bryce, when we realize that so much of what happens in geopolitics really centers around the mega profits of like a handful of a wealthy people in corporations sort of showing how little our lives really matter within this system and how they only really have value in so far as they can be exploited. But having said all that, I'm not uh, uh, someone who believes in resigning themselves to doom and gloom. I actually do think uh, the situation can change, but I don't think it can change all on its own. It is something that can only happen and will only happen as the result of that very organized militant movement that I was discussing earlier. And we can't discount that. We have to fight back against these messages that, oh, there's nothing we can do. We, we don't have any power. We don't have the ability to change things. All we can do is wait every two and four years to uh, pick which capitalist is going to uh, rule over us for the next period. We have to shake off this kind of learned hopelessness that this system and this society places on us. And it's no coincidence that it's placed on us because it's supposed to disincline us from resisting it. But as things continue to intensify and consciousness continues to change, we have to deepen our efforts and continue this fight. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I want to thank Bryce Green so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.